Okay, we're continuing to move through the book of Exodus. Just started a couple of weeks ago. It's the second book in the Bible. Uh, You can go through Genesis, you come to Exodus. And we are at the end of chapter 2, moving into chapter 3. So, chapter 2, verses 23 and 20 through 25 are a kind of pivot in that they tell us what God's response to the suffering and oppression that we've seen up to this point. Really, there's been no mention of God except for those who fear God, the midwives. And so, the question's kind of purposely put before us, where is God? What is God doing? And so, then... We have this that kind of summarizes or at least is a comment on what's been happening. But it's also an introduction, a preparation for what is about to happen in his revelation to Moses. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen, also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. 
This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to them, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your, on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. That's the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Let us pray. Father, bless us, we pray that We may come to know you all the more because of what you reveal to us in your word in this precious passage in Exodus. Uh, Lord, open up our hearts and fix our hearts upon you and your glory and your goodness to us in Christ. We pray, Lord, for your honor. Amen. Uh, Many of you are aware that names are particularly important uh, in the Bible. Sometimes, for instance, a person is given a new name in the Bible as a way of describing uh, a new show of character. So, for instance, Jacob, in the middle of the night, struggled and wrestled with the angel, right? And when he did that, his name was changed from Jacob to Israel because... Israel means he who strives with God. His wrestling was a picture of his dependence upon God for mercy and blessing. As he said to God, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, you're the one who strives with God. You're Israel. It reminds me of the Canaanite woman who came after Jesus begging for mercy for her daughter possessed by an evil spirit. She wouldn't go away, and finally Jesus said to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Typical approach to uh, answering somebody. In other words, don't you know Messiah is for the Jews and not the Gentiles? Now, he didn't mean that, but he's giving her the common understanding. Don't you know I'm not here for the Gentile? And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Beautiful. And Jesus answered, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed that instant. You see, she strove after, struggled after God's blessing. She expected his goodness to shine forth in her life. She wouldn't let go. She believed his goodness and power. She may have been a Canaanite, but she was an Israelite in heart. And so we must be Israelites in heart. 
We're called to expect his goodness in Christ. We must say with Jacob, I won't let you go until you bless me. And when some inner or outer voice or God's providence or our failure is saying to us, hey, his goodness, his salvation is not for you. We must say with the Canaanite woman, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table, right? We must expect his goodness and his grace. So you see, a name like Israel can not only define a person, it can define a whole people. It can define what we are, how we trust God, how we should expect God's goodness in every circumstance, no matter how difficult, disheartening, shocking, or tragic. We are Israel. We're those who strive after God. So names are really critical. All the more important is the name of God. The name that God gives himself. That's what this passage is all about. It's a passage that reveals who God is, what God is to his people, what he will be for his people. One of the most critical passages in all of scripture. First, let's look at the circumstance of Moses in this revelation. The circumstance of Moses. We think Moses must have completely identified with the Midianites or he never would have taken the job as a shepherd. Because as Joseph said to his own brothers who were shepherds when they were being brought into Egypt, all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. That's why they had to go live in a separate place because they didn't want to be around them, the shepherds. But here he is now, a shepherd. Moses, who had participated in the wealth and power and earthly wisdom of Egypt, one of the pinnacles of human culture at that time. Now he's basically a household worker. He's taking care of someone else's sheep. He had none of his own. It's the most menial task in a foreign land. And to any human eye, Moses would appear a tragic figure who had lost everything. Kind of like a CEO of Procter & Gamble who's now in the kitchen of a Waffle House scrubbing pots and pans, barely making ends meet. That's the difference. Or like you seeing a homeless man on the street like me, realizing, oh wait, that's the starting fullback on my high school team. One of the most popular guys in school. Look at him now. That's the picture of Moses here, keeping sheep on the west side. But we know this poor shepherd will lead Israel out of Egypt. This account summarizes first for us that the whole thing that's happening, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. Then it starts rolling out how it happened to Moses or how he responded to it. This word angel of the Lord is a bit confusing. Uh, It basically means the angel who was the Lord, the angel who is Yahweh or the angel who manifests Yahweh. Uh, Because as you'll see, it is Yahweh who appears. But he does this many times to give a focal point for people to communicate, commune with God. uh, A place where they can uh, talk and relate to. Kind of a heavenly Skype, okay, so to speak. But only a voice, uh, but some visibility. And there's this burning bush 
that's so strange. It's like a furnace, but the bush doesn't have any smoke. It's not blackened. As far as the bush is concerned, the fire wasn't there. It'd be like, kids, if you saw a piece of paper and this flame has just engulfed this piece of paper, but the paper's not burning. But there's the fire, but the paper's not burning. And you just look at it and think, what in, what, what? You'd think somebody's pulling my leg here. This is crazy that this is going on. Well, that's, that's how God caught his attention. This couldn't be happening, but it was. And he pulled him in in that way. Probably the fact that it was self-sustained, was not using the fuel, was a, a, a little preview of what he was going to say about himself. I'm the Lord that sustains all things. I need nothing. I'm the sovereign over all. And of course, as we know, he tells him to take his sandals off his feet. Likely, this is because the ground you see from Genesis is considered cursed, right? The dust is the curse, and we return to the dust. In this place, however, and so you needed to wear sandals to stay away. In this place, however, it was as though there's return to paradise. God is present, and this has now become holy ground, curse-free ground. And you can take your shoes off here. It's as though beauty is back. <laughs> Holiness and beauty is back. And you can come into the presence of God. The tabernacle was like that as a restatement of paradise uh, with all of the uh, virtue pictured on the walls and the light. It was as though heaven had come down to earth. And so there's a kind of foretaste, you see, of the redemption of the whole earth, even in this. And so uh, we get into the discussion, uh, the discussion of Moses. So the setting is Moses out in the wilderness, poverty stricken. We're not poverty stricken, but uh, it looks like everything's been taken away. And then we come to this uh, discussion. And he tells him in verses 7 through 9 what was stated earlier in verses 23 through 25, basically. So what we hear in the heavenly court that started our reading of God hearing their groaning, now it's announced on earth to Moses that I have heard their groaning. But when God says, I've heard, it means I'm going to do something about it. I will change the situation. It's not just, hey, I heard about this. I've heard it. I've heard it, and now I'm going to do something about it. But the real change occurs when he goes from saying, verses 7 through 9, I'm going to do this. And in all of that, uh, Moses might say, hey, that's great. Let me know how it's going when you do this. Let me know when you're done. Call me up and I'll just wait here and I'll join up with the people of God when they get out here. That sounds good. We'll have a happy reunion. Um, and you might think in, he goes in uh, pro progressive thought saying, well, okay, okay, maybe I can just go and at least announce that to them. Or, okay, I'll go and just be a part of it. But that's not what God's saying, right? No, you are going to go and you are going to lead them out. You can imagine why he would say, who am I? Which in itself is not a wrong statement because David and Solomon later uh, were uh, saying this same phrase to God, but they were just expressing their humility before God. They say, who am I that I should receive this great honor? 
But from the further uh, interaction that occurs in chapter 4 and Paul and Moses saying, I don't want to do this, it probably means a little more than that here. Uh, You can imagine, though, what was running through his head. My attempts to free them were a miserable failure. I was chased out of Egypt. There's a bounty on my head. I'm a dead man if I go back there. I can have no respect from the leaders of Israel because I'm just an Egyptian criminal now. This is crazy. I've got nothing. I'm in the middle of nowhere, and I'm taking care of sheep. Who am I to do this? You can just imagine how that would strike him as an idea uh, that's insane. Me and my situation. He would naturally have thought, when I had honor, when I had dignity, when I had power, maybe I could have wielded something that could have gotten them out, but there's no hope in this. He couldn't even imagine what God was going to do to, to Egypt. He couldn't imagine the plagues. He couldn't imagine the mighty power of God. And, of course, God says here, and basically in verse 12 when he says, but I will be with you, the, the word means because, because. The point is, I will be with you. This is said over a hundred times in the Old Testament. It's one of the most common statements of God. It's because I'll be with you. That will make all the difference in the world. And so there's this. The setting of Moses' uh, dip, uh, deprivation, there's Moses' loss of all things, it seems like, uh, there's this discussion that brings him to the edge of thinking about going there. And then let me just give a little bit wider look at the overall context, because this is important in our hearing about this name as it's revealed, Okay. So we have his circumstance, we have this discussion, then this wider context, because I want to remind you that this revelation of God's name that we have there in verse 14, I am that I am, it comes after these first two chapters seeing the terrible oppression of Egypt uh, against Israel. And in that oppression, Four women and one girl who courageously protect the lives of children whom Pharaoh was seeking to murder. The two midwives in chapter 1 and Moses' mother and sister and Pharaoh's daughter in chapter 2. So all of them literally risked their lives for the sake of these children. And humanly speaking, there wouldn't have been an Israel or Moses or even a Messiah without their action. So this speaks of the critical importance of what each and every mother does for her children and gives to her children and prays and sacrifices for her children. It also parallels our struggle to deliver children through pregnancy lifeline, through legislation, and through a quiet prayer witness like 40 Days that, is, that began this past week. But you see, it's against this oppression that the name of God is expressed. It's in light of that oppression, and the revelation must speak to that oppression in some way. It must speak into this oppression and enslavement and mean something for them in their situation. Because when Moses asks God for God's name, he's thinking, okay, I go back to Egypt. Let's say I tell them that the God of their fathers has appeared to me and God wants to deliver them out of Egypt. I have a question. Who will I say has sent me? They will want to know who you are. They'll want to know if you really can do anything. 
Can you do what you promised to the fathers? That's how important name is in this passage. It doesn't just, in an abstract way, define God. It declares who God is, what He's capable of, what He will do. It's to answer that question, well, who is this? How could He do anything? So, then we come then to the declaration of the name itself. And... I say all this because if you're honest and you're like me, when you first hear this name, I am that I am or I am who I am, you may think as I did when I first read it, huh? I mean, really? What does that mean? What does that mean even? Much less do I get encouragement or comfort from it because it's so hard to even understand what it means. And as John Frame relates in his book, his uh, huge tome on the doctrine of God, many have thought that God is not really giving a name here, okay? Like the German theologian Thielica says, the name is wrapped in a final inappropriateness so that God escapes and transcends it. In other words, he says something that means you can't even get who I am, okay? That's, that's some approaches, Karl Barth, it's a refusal of any name. It recalls the hiddenness of the revealed God. It doesn't really reveal God. It just shows he's hidden and you can't know him. Or Krauss, it reveals nothing of God's present nature, but amounts to a promise of future revelation. Nothing now, but there's something coming. Who knows what? Aquinas taught that God is being here. I am he who is being itself. And as Frame says, in this context where God is promising to to deliver Israel from Egypt, why would God have to give Moses a metaphysical definition of himself? And then why wouldn't he be clearer if he's going to do that, right? If he's giving some kind of vague metaphysical definition of who knows what he just said, okay? So, the more recent... Consensus. These are uh, maybe theologians, uh, critical and more liberal theologians of the late 19th century, early early 20th century. But conservative and uh, liberal alike have come to this strong consensus that, believe it or not, comes from the context. Okay, Uh, the context of Scripture. Wow, who who would have thought? Um, So one of the Context is verse 12 itself, where the I am is connected with I am with you, or I will be with you. It's the same word there in verse 12. And so God is saying, in effect, here, I will be present to deliver you. It's a statement of his presence here and now. The sense is this, it is I who am with my creatures in their hour of trouble and need, as I have already declared, I will be with you. So it's a a huge way, a creative way of saying, I am completely here. And it's saying, I'm not just here in the abstract, I am present, I'm active, I'm involved, I'm on the ground. This is a making things happen presence. 
Because there's a continuous, I am being here. I am the one being here. You see, I'm fully here manifesting my presence. I'm everything that I am is going to be with you. It also expresses his authority. One scholar says this is basically a declaration of authority. He is making anything he wants to happen happen. In fact, this word when you the, the, this word I am is basically the same root that we have God's own name Yahweh. Okay, and Yahweh's name itself has more of a it, it takes a causative form. So some would say Moses heard it this way: I cause to happen. What I cause to happen. I cause to be what I cause to be. See, it's a declaration of absolute sovereignty of God. I am present fully and I cause whatever I want to happen to happen. It's a statement of his being the creator and sustainer of everything that exists. That he is the Lord of history and of all of creation. He's the Lord of anything that is happening. So he is active and present in this and all historical affairs. Absolute authority on the scene. Okay? Absolute authority on the scene and present to help. And implicit in this also is I'm the one who fulfills my promises. Right? Implicit is, I'm the God of your fathers, and I, I bring all authority and my full being to bear on fulfilling those promises. And especially does this speak to his delivering his people. So there's this idea of presence. There's the idea of authority. And, and all of that is for the end that he will be the one who delivers his people. I am the God sovereignly present to rescue you and no one can stop me. I am that I am. I am all in all the time for your good. You can see this later in uh, Exodus 15 after the uh, parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of the Egyptian army. When they proclaim Yahweh is your name. Basically saying, I am, I am, is your name. In other words, you see, his name and what he does match each other. You are indeed Yahweh. Look how you've delivered us. Look how you parted the Red Sea. Look how you destroyed Egypt in the plagues. Look how you've destroyed them in the sea. Indeed, you are the I am that I am, you see. You are Yahweh. You are the all-powerful, absolute one who delivers his people. Great is your name, Yahweh. So you see... The name Yahweh in this revelation, I am, has to do with his absolute authority, his presence to save. He's the one who comes to the aid of his people for the sake of his name, it says again and again in Scripture. Why is that? Because his name declares, I'm the all-powerful one who delivers his people. 
That's why in Psalm 23, he says, He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So that he lives up to his name. So that he matches that name. That is the name of authority and power and deliverance who rescues his people. Psalm 25, 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And you'll see this throughout uh, the Old Testament. So it's for the sake of his great name, the name I am. I am here. I have all authority and I will deliver you. Now I would ask you to turn with me to later in the book of Exodus to chapter 33. Because this is basically an exposition of God's name. This is basically an explanation of the name of God. In Exodus 33, toward the end, in verse 18, where some of you remember uh, Moses. I keep wanting to say say Paul. I don't know why. Um, Moses said there, please show me your glory. Okay. Now, notice what he says in response to that. I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And then he declares in the next sentence something that is so alike in its grammar. I am that I am. And it's this. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. It's the same way he said, I am that I am. Okay. And so as he's declaring what he will do for Moses in proclaiming his name, he's saying, my name is basically this. I am all powerful and present to show grace to anybody whom I choose and nobody can stop me. That's the name of God. Do you see? It's it's. It's mercy that is offered and will be given to anyone who trusts in him and nothing can stand in the way of it because he is the sovereign God. I am that I am. This means, you see, I'm present to redeem. I'm present to deliver. I'm fully present in all of my sovereign capacity to rescue. Grace and mercy will flow. It'll go wherever I want it to and nothing can stop it. This is encouraging because he invites every one of you to be the recipient of his mercy and his grace. Because he is Yahweh. He is the God who gives his mercy wherever he chooses and then even further, if you drop to verse uh, chapter 34, verse uh, 6, where the actual passing before Moses occurs, where it says he proclaimed his name. Notice, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh. Basically, I am that I am. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, etc. You see, here it is. 
he proclaimed his name. And there he repeats what he says earlier about, I show mercy on whom I show mercy and, and I'm gracious, uh, I'll show grace to whom I want to. These are the same two words he begins with. Yahweh, a God sovereign in mercy and grace, sovereign in kindness, loving kindness and faithfulness. And so this is God. This is what God declares himself to be. And my own wife said one of the most amazing events in her life was when she was in seminary and heard this passage for the first time. And it hit her that God names himself and no one else can name him. He names himself and he's the absolute God, not depending on anything or anyone. He alone pours forth his mercy and grace. So many times you and I act as though this is not who God is, right? In our panic, we can turn in on ourselves. We abandon hope. We think we have seen in our circumstances yet another confirmation that God is not on our side. We think he is the non-present God. We think he is the absent God, the abandoning God, the ditched me God, the dumped me God, the neglecting, forgetting, deserting God. But God says, no, I am Yahweh. I am present and I pour out my mercy wherever I want. This kind of making up of a God gives me an excuse for my anger or my anxiety or my panic or my self-pity. It justifies the implosion of self, my refusal to move out into other people's lives and to give myself away for their good. It's convenient to have a God who allows me to wallow in self-pity and not a God who is abundant and powerful to change me and to change my situation and to do good no matter what is happening to us, to me. And so I'm saying to you, don't make up your own sorry substitute God. Let me not make up my God. He doesn't exist. I must not allow myself to think that he exists, my God, this made-up God. You must not let them create your reality. You must not let them define you as a person. You're made up gods. So I would say it in this way. No more artificially sweetened, artificially flavored, fat-free, taste-free, non-dairy substitutes with freezer burn gods. Okay? (laughs) That don't care about you. Don't make them up. Don't act like they're real. Accept no substitutes, especially not of your own making. Feast on the sweet, rich, full, I am with you, true and living God. There is no other God. No other God. He gives his name. And brothers and sisters, is it not most fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ himself? If Christ, as John says in John 1.18, and you ladies and some of you men have been studying this. If it says there, there that he's the exposition of God, he's the exegesis of God, he's the explanation of who God is. 
then his revelation of God has to be exactly in line with what God said when he said, I am that I am. There are not going to be two different things there. Oh, this is some kind of weird God. And then we see Jesus, you know. No, this is the God declaring, I'm with you to deliver you and I have all power. And here God is showing and manifesting what this meant. I show myself in the flesh. I am the word made flesh. I am Emmanuel, God with us. He will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That is the I am that I am who shows up on the scene flesh and blood. That is a God to be trusted. That is a God to be loved and adored. That is a Christ that can change your crises, right? That this is the God who cares for me in this way. What he finally did in saying to Moses this was he came in the flesh and he bore my sins. He's so identified with me that he took on my debt and he paid that debt. And so now more than ever, we hear what Jesus said at the end of Matthew Chapter 28, and lo, I am with you to the end of the world. (laughs) It's the same statement, same thing, that God is with us now in the person of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, how we praise you for this revelation of your greatness, this revelation of your authority unhindered authority, unhindered presence, filling all things in every way with your absolute sovereignty in every place. And, oh, Lord Jesus, that you are this God, come to us to bear our punishment, to so identify yourself with us, That you even now know what it is to suffer. You even now know what it is to be tempted. So that you would be a perfect savior for your people. Oh Lord Jesus. These astonishing words in Exodus 3. Receive a whole new level of astonishment. In John 1. When we read that the one who made the world and everything in it has now become flesh and he has shown forth God. And you're seen to be this God of majesty who would lay down his life for his people. Oh Lord, may we hide ourselves in you. May we be encouraged. May we live out this precious gospel. May we announce it to others that they too might know this astonishing God for your glory and honor. Amen.